The descriptions for bold women change over time. Unnatural, dangerous, uppity, but such women soldier on. They're the women who step way out of lines that society draws for them, who defy the parameters of nice and even decent, and change all women's lives when they do. Anne Helen Peterson's new book, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, The Rise and Reign of the Unruly Woman, uses the careers of celebrities like Melissa McCarthy and Nicki Minaj as the filters through which to process how society, men and some women too, will pinpoint and police how women should behave. To Peterson, who is the senior culture writer at BuzzFeed, the 2016 presidential campaign looked like the rain was rising. Now, Unruly is feeling the recoil and shoving right back. How would you define an unruly woman? No, I think of it as anything that's like too, like T-O-O. So to, like, the you know, the, the title of the book is Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, but it's also anyone who's just too much in some way. So the best way that I've used to describe it is it's the type of woman who, once you see her on screen or in a personal interaction, you're like, ugh, that was too much for me. Historically, those women have been punished, sometimes yes. punished to death. And now you write about the reign of the unruly women. Uh, do they really reign now? Well, that's a good question. There's a moment where they reign, and this happened with Roseanne as well. You know, she was arguably the most popular star of her moment in the early 90s, dominated television. But, you know, there's this reign and then there's a recoil or a rejection. When I started writing it, we were at this apex of the the rule of these more contemporary, this, this generation of unruly women. And then since then, there has been this pushback. And part of it, you know, was developing as I was writing the book last year. And it didn't become entirely clear, you know, or visible to me until the election. And now I think we have a general pushback against these unruly women. You organize the book by the characters, the public women that you you scrutinize, and the first of them is Serena Williams. What makes her unruly? So her subtitle is Too Strong, but there's overlapping and compounding modes of unruliness for each of them. So Serena Williams could also be, you know, too black, especially for what had to that point been an almost entirely white sport and also a very bourgeois sport. Tennis is a very white sport. I'm traveling to Europe all the time. I'm traveling to Russia, where you can count the black people. Usually it's me and my mom. My dad always said, you don't know, you can't get ahead and, and do what, everything you want to do in life until you know your past, understand your past. The way that she changed the game was not only through, you know, the way that she appeared on the tennis court, the, the way that her hair was on the tennis court. And it's hard for us to remember, like, the late 90s, there were all these complaints about the, the clack of the beads in their braids, that it was somehow disruptive. And so the, the overlapping modes of unruliness made a lot of people uncomfortable, but also makes her this incredibly magnetic star. These things just don't die. Like, you know, John McEnroe the other day was like, if Serena played in the men's tournament, she would be ranked 800. 
Like, what, what's going on with John McEnroe that he feels the need to contest the idea that Serena Williams is one of the best, not just women tennis players of all time, but one of the best tennis players of all time? It seems for a lot of the women in your book that if they're big successes, then they're in a position to break the rules. Yeah, I think that you need to accumulate some sort of privilege, fame or, or capital, in order to push those boundaries more. And you also mentioned Roseanne, who mm-hmm. certainly qualifies in a lot of the title of your book. Yeah. Loud, uh-huh. fat, also a groundbreaker. Mm-hmm. What did she do? What ground did she break? And her unrepentance, I think, was as important as anything she did to repent of. Yeah. Being in control of her own show on network television is huge. I think also, you know, one thing that a lot of people talk about is she fought to have a working class family represented on TV and have a, you know, a living room that was cluttered and have a relationship with her husband and with her kids that wasn't always cute. I think that that was groundbreaking and, and also made people uncomfortable. We're so used to seeing, like, everyone on TV is middle class. Um, and... I think just her stuff that she did off screen always was pushing boundaries. And I, it's hard, again, to recall just how anxious and upset people were after she sang the national anthem off key. such a, a blip now, but wow, just immediate backlash. But I do think that, you know, with the women, I was always thinking, okay, so what are our boundaries right now of how a woman should be in public? Not only what is okay for the celebrity to do, but what is it okay for just a person, like, you know, a regular person in the world? What could they get in trouble for doing? Or get in trouble is the wrong word. What would they be quietly, overtly censored for if they did in public? You also track the changes in the way rapper Nicki Minaj has chosen to present herself. What I try to be really mindful of is how, as a white woman, I've had control over the ways that I can represent my body historically for a much longer time than women of color whose sexuality has been commodified for them, has been physically owned by it, by other people. And so... I think oftentimes, like, this is what comes through with Nicki Minaj, is how would a black woman think of owning her sexuality differently than a white woman would? You write that she conceives of her image not as a frivolity, but as a business and oversees it accordingly. So in a way, mm-hmm. is she commodifying herself and the fact that she controls herself is the dominant characteristic, not the sexuality? She very forcefully rejected a sexual image at the beginning of her career. And this is when she was wearing all of the wigs and doing, you know, a lot of voice play. And and I think that for her, I don't just think, I know that for her, she has said, she didn't want anyone to think that she was only popular because she was hot or she had a good body or because she had objectified herself. She wanted to reject that image, which so many other female rappers had, uh, you know, been limited by in a lot of ways. So she went through that period of her career and obtained incredible success. And then she decided, oh, I want to play around with this sexy side, but also in like a really funny and playful way. Like if you 
seen the video for Anaconda, like it's a very, it's a very absurdist take on on sexuality in a lot of ways. Oh my gosh! Look at her butt. The thing that I have learned again and again with these women in particular is that when they say something about what they're doing, we should listen to them more. (laughs) You and I know as writers with a public profile that no matter what it is we write about, some percentage of the criticism we get is not going to be about the content. It's going to be sexual. It's going to use Mm -hmm. sexual insults. It's going to use sexual references. Is that just the way it will be for women? Well... I think that the the biggest insult that a lot of men think that they can wield at women is to suggest that no one wants to have sex with them. <laughs> that suggestion is seen as like this blunt force that somehow will devastate a woman. But I think that as long as as women we can reject this understanding that we are our primary value is how much a guy wants to have sex with us, then that insult loses its weight and loses its power. One of the saddest chapters for me to read was about Madonna, because you write about a woman who reaches 60, is still performing as a sexual person, is criticized for it, But in order to show that she's still a sexual person, she has to work to make herself act and, to the extent possible, look like someone who's 30, even though she's 60, rather than just being 60. You know, I really set out to write this chapter that was going to be like, oh, Madonna's breaking all these barriers by showing that you can be sexual over the age of 50. And what I discovered is that I don't actually think Madonna thinks that older women can be sexy. I think that she thinks that older women who look like her can be sexy. And that's a really impossible line to tread. She works out for hours and hours a day. It's an, like, that, that's not... And has one open. glass of wine a week. I feel sorry for her. Oh, I know. Wasn't that so sad? <laughs> and I think that that sort of regimen, this incredibly self-policed understanding of what it can, like, how you can fit into society... It's heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And, I, you know, I suggest she's not breaking ground for other women. She's never been about, like, oh, these other older women are also sexy. It's been a highly individualistic. I don't think that we are at the point yet that, as Americans in particular, that we're ready to conceive of of women over a certain age as sexual. The ease and the spread of plastic surgery and Botox and all of these things doesn't actually make it easier for women to feel sexy as they get older. It means that you have to, like, as you get older, instead of changing the standard that, like, oh, yes, the 60-year-old woman, the way that a 60-year-old woman looks is beautiful, is sexual, is all of these things. It's more like there's an expectation that when you're 60 that you must try to keep your face looking 30. I'm thinking about how things we see every day fit into some of the tropes that you talk about in the book. Think of Michelle Obama and the criticism she received for wearing sleeveless dresses to official events. She had very strong, very toned arms. And now we see the First Lady, we see Ivanka Trump showing up at official events wearing sleeveless dresses. And not a peep. I mean, I think that Michelle Obama's 
first ladyhood was incredibly overdetermined to be the first black first lady. Everything that you do is more uh, open to criticism, more open to, well, this is different. She looks different. They're asking different people to the White House. You know, I think she had seen exactly what had happened with Hillary Clinton trying to be a stronger force as a first lady and knew that, you know, if she tried the same, she would receive not just similar backlash, but even stronger because of all of this unfounded anxiety over having a person of color as the first lady. If you compare it to the way that people talk about Melania's arms, like, well, of course, she's a model. Why wouldn't you see her arms? We want to see her arms. We want to see more of her. And it's just, it, to me, it highlights, there's just not a lot of thoughtfulness that goes into the way that we react to women. And, and then you write about Hillary Clinton. Because she was the first to do that, she paid the price. She was either too masculine, too feminine. She, she could never strike the right tone. Is that because she was the first woman to do this? Or was there something about her in particular that made this strike a wrong chord with some voters? Oh, I think both. The, the title of that chapter is Too Shrill, which is a word that we use to describe when a, a woman's tone of voice becomes louder in public. And I think, again, that it's that there's just no examples or precedent for having a woman speak loudly, powerfully, assertively in public spaces. And I think, you know, we've come up with pejoratives to describe their voice or their demeanor when they do so as a means of, you know, warding other women out of following those footsteps. The reason why we continue to try to unpack this campaign is because there was so much that qualified her and then also so much that seemed to disqualify her. A lot of politicians, when they enter public life, they have some history that they need to, you know, overcome or or position or deal with. Hillary had decades of public life and and public animosity and public, you know, love after Monica Lewinsky, I think that it's just impossible to untangle that knot. A lot of the people who I talked to, again, on the campaign trail who hated Hillary most vehemently were women. There's a quote that I use in the chapter, I think the political analyst who's talking about that there is a, there's a resentment towards the decisions that Hillary made in her life. Um, and I think it's not necessarily that women are jealous of her, like that's the wrong word for it. But I do think, you know, whether it's the rhetoric that we use to talk about women who choose not to get married or not to have children, or the women who, you know, decide to, uh, you know, have a short maternity leave and then go back to work and, and, you know, have nannies instead of staying home for longer. There are ways that women quietly try to censor women who don't make the decisions that they make. And Hillary Clinton again and again made decisions that most women in America have not made. And yet, apropos of your book title about the rise and reign of the unruly women, you saw women's protests across the country, a very popular T-shirt, Nasty Woman, which is the phrase that Donald Trump used to describe Hillary Clinton in a debate. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Security Trust woman. Fund by making sure that we have sufficient resources. Maybe women are, are claiming that turf that, had, uh, uh, that they'd been afraid of before. I think so. The, the most remarkable place that I've seen it is talking to different women who are in their 
50s and 60s who are retired or, or close to retirement, kids have left the house who have just poured themselves into activism. And a lot of them, you know, they tell me, they're like, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm just going to work as hard as I can to, to change things. And that's something that when you reach a certain age, you know, there's, there's this idea that women over the age of, you know, 45, 50 become invisible because they're no longer valued by society. But then at the same time, that invisibility, it's like a cloak, you know, it's like you can do all of this work. People don't come after you. It's this incredibly empowering thing in some ways. This is their moment to, to be unruly. One point about a lot of these women who are now embracing activism is that like women of color have been doing this sort of activism for decades, especially within the black community. There's just, there have been ferocious and effective unruly leaders who have been women for a very long time. I think that politically there's more of a willingness on the left to embrace this sort of unruliness. You know, like I always think of like Ivanka, who is arguably the most powerful female politician <laughs> or, you know, political advisor right now in the United States, who went on the news and said, you know, I don't like to be involved in politics. Like, and that's this idea that it's still unseemly to be involved in politics, which is really, really fascinating to me that she can, you know, she wields this power, but you need to elide any idea that you are actually super powerful, you know, because that's what makes men uncomfortable. But even on the left, though, I think there, there's still there's pushback towards unruliness. The misogyny from many Bernie bros, not all, but a lot of Bernie supporters, is real and like the left has to deal with that just because you're a liberal doesn't mean that you don't have internalized misogyny. So where are we now? Are we still rising or is the pushback working? I think we're in a moment of recoil. You know, I think like the history of feminism is two steps forward and one step back and we're in that step back right now. I think that what we can do right now is instead of you know, kind of following this trend towards a, a rejection or, or a watering down of feminism or a recoil from it is we can try to make that step back shorter, last a shorter amount of time, not be as significant, and keep fighting it. What's the reaction been from readers from the or even from the public that hasn't read it but just saw the title? It's been really interesting. A lot of women have told me it feels like an unruly act to read it in public because the cover is very loud. <laughs> it has like too fat, too slutty, too loud in a bold print on a pink background, which was kind of purposeful to have like the femininity of pink juxtaposed with the the words. Uh, and that they get a lot of stares from men when they read it. And I think that's really fascinating that like you, to, per, to read the book in public is, a, is an act of unruliness in and of itself. I'm a bitch, I'm a Well, this has just been terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Todd G. Levin. The audio moments are from The Roseanne Show on ABC, Roseanne singing the national anthem at a San Diego Padres game, Serena Williams on Counter-Racism TV, 
Nicki Minaj singing Anaconda on Cash Money Records, Madonna singing Girl Gone Wild on Interscope Records, Meredith Brooks is singing Bitch on Capitol Records, and the presidential debate is on CNN. I am Pat Morrison. Feel the shame.